0: Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 2 uh, tonight with me in your Bibles. Psalm 2, the second psalm. Uh, if you were with us last time, then you know that uh, last Sunday night we looked at Psalm 1. And uh, as we have now finished the, the letters of John, uh, as we worked through 1st and 2nd and 3rd John recently... Um, And are I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it, between uh, book studies and Chase and I have been thinking about and praying about uh, what direction we wanted to go next in terms of kind of parking and being somewhere. Uh, We just weren't quite sure and and were undecided a bit on that, and so. Um, we decided to do some studies in the Psalms, beginning in the beginning, and this will be a good place for us if we have interim periods or times where we're not currently in a book study that we can always return. And so, I'm not quite sure how many of these that we'll get through. Maybe a few uh, before we enter into another book study. And, and and so, one of my favorite places in Scripture uh, is particularly the opening of the Psalms. I told Chase last week I was kind of jealous that he ended up taking Psalm one. Uh, that's Maybe one of my favorite passages of Scripture, uh, one that I, one of the few that that I have absolutely committed to memory. I I love it. I've preached from it many times. I've taught from it many times. It's been a great encouragement to my life and my heart. Um, But we're going to look tonight together then at Psalm two. Uh, We're just going to jump right in. So let's pray, and then we'll read the text together. God, we need your word. God like Psalm one sets out for the blessed man. We want our delight to be in your law and in your commandments. And those are found in your word. Uh, it, it is our desire now to meditate upon it. But God, if we have any hope of, of doing that well, we, we need your spirit to help us. And so we pray that you would uh, illuminate by your spirit, our hearts and our minds, And uh, God, that your word would be revealed to us, that we would understand the things that we read, that we would be helped and benefited by the things that we read, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds through what we now read, and most of all, that we would be confronted with Jesus from Psalm 2. So God, speak to us from your word, by the power of your spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Psalm 2. serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, as we begin, uh, some people struggle a bit with this psalm, and there are some textual and, and, and interpretive difficulties, but I don't want us to as we kind of jump into looking at the details and trying to understand what it's saying, I don't want us to miss the, on the one hand, the beauty of Psalm 2, because it seems to be sort of fierce and, you know, furious, and um, sometimes people struggle with that. But there's an incredible, even poetic beauty uh, to Psalm 2. But I also want us to see the connection between Psalm 2 and Psalm 1. And so many people don't see and understand that and, and maybe miss that a bit. But in its poetic beauty, in some way, uh, Psalm 2 uh, is the introduction. I mean, Psalm 1 is the introduction for Psalm 2, and Psalm 2 gives in greater detail what, like, the working out of what has been set forth in Psalm 1. So in Psalm 1, you have this contrast between two people. And these two people are on two ways there is the way of the righteous the man that is blessed, and there is the way of the wicked, the man for whom there will be no standing before God, and he will, under the wrath of God, surely perish. So there are these two ways and these two paths. Then in Psalm 2, we see that even worked out in greater detail, so that this is what this looks like. In the poetic beauty, even of the structure um, that sometimes we miss in our English translations, there's a number of striking similarities for example, the number of verses and stanzas, particularly if we see it as Chase gave it, as split into two stanzas in Psalm 1, 1 through 4 and then 5 through 12. I mean, five through 1 through 3 and 4, 5, and 6. Sorry, getting 2 and 1 mixed up here. Then if we see it as split in 2, when you look at Psalm 2, then what you have is the uh, number of stanzas and verses is exactly doubled. So instead of six verses, there are now 12. And instead of two predominant stanzas, there are now uh, four. And you see those um, kind of broken out usually accordingly in our English Bibles. Notice also that the second psalm begins where the first psalm ends. That is with a treacherous warning of the way of the wicked, those look what it says, the nations that rage and the peoples who plot against the king that God has set on his holy hill. So there is, this, there is this warning, this treacherous warning that is given. So just like the wicked and the way of the wicked, where this warning that comes to the end of Psalm 1, Psalm 2 begins where Psalm 1 ends. And conversely, it ends where Psalm 1 began. So it's, it's very interesting that if you take both of these psalms together, then you have that it begins with a beatitude or a statement of blessing. Then there is these two warnings that follow one another about the way of the wicked. And then there is, in the end of Psalm 2, another beatitude or a blessing. So you see in Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Look at the very end of Psalm 2. For those who kiss the Son, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So that's bracketed by those two Beatitudes. So I just want you to see that there are some striking similarities and some very carefully orchestrated poetic beauty. Uh, it, it's always good to see those things because it helps us to stand amazed at what God has done in His Word. Uh, they may not mean much to you, but to look at the care that the Holy Spirit of God worked in um, Compiling and preparing and writing this word for us. A couple, one other thing. Um, there are a few difficulties, or a couple of difficulties. The poetry uh, is pretty complex. Uh, for example, it is not easy at all as you go through Psalm two to keep a right understanding of who is talking. Okay, and I'm going to try to I'm going to try to tell you as we work through the lines and the stanzas who is talking because it helps in rightly understanding the psalm. But that's a, that's a difficulty of the uh, poetry. Secondly, the setting. If you notice this psalm, there's no introduction. No one claims to have written it. Uh, we know from elsewhere in Scripture, uh, in Acts, that that David wrote this psalm because it is ascribed to him, but it's not given here. And so that, is, that has brought about a lot of questions of what is the occasion or the setting for this psalm? Two primary options exist historically. One is that this is a coronation psalm so that uh, when David ascended the throne, maybe particularly, or when Solomon or when some of their successors actually ascended the throne at their coronation, that this psalm would have been read so that it's a psalm of the ascension of the king to his position of power and an acknowledgement of him being coronated as the great king over God's people. Um, It is also uh, possible... Uh, that the occurrence of this psalm is actually in light of some specific rebellion against the king that occasioned the writing of this psalm, speaking about the king's power in subjecting all of these men that he will break with a rod of iron into pieces like a potter's vessel and subject them under his reign and under his feet. It's also possible, if I was going to Uh, go with one. I think I would go with the former. That is that it's a coronation psalm where a king is being seen to ascend the throne. Um, But what we're going to find is that I think those poetic difficulties and even that ambiguity of setting uh, is actually intentional and important. And the reason is that it helps us to look at this psalm and to read this psalm and to ultimately hope not in any earthly king, not in any particular setting, but in the, the great king that is coming to hope For the greater son of David, King Jesus, that will one day ascend the throne. In other words, when we think about all of the details of this psalm, what they encompass, the fury of the threats that are made and the glory of the promises of salvation and redemption that are made, the reality is that no earthly king up to this point or that would ever come after can in his time or ever did, could in his time, have embraced all of those treacherous threats and all of those glorious promises in his tenure. So so no earthly king as an individual uh, subject or an individual setting for this psalm could have actually embodied and seen brought to fulfillment all of the things that we find in this psalm. Why? Because it is a messianic psalm. Uh, Tradition, Christian tradition, Jewish tradition, even uh, the history of the church has always understood this psalm uh, without really any debate to be a messianic psalm. That is a psalm that looks to Jesus Christ and that is understood to be talking about Jesus Christ as he is the reigning king over God's people. Uh, Not only tradition, as we'll see, this is made abundantly clear by its use in the New Testament. So there are some psalms that we know that they are messianic psalms, that is, that they are psalms explicitly about the Messiah and are to be understood in that way because Jesus himself quotes them as being about him. He says, look, guys, you know, psalm whatever, that was about me. Okay, So even if you don't understand that, so we're told that in Scripture. This one is not quoted by Jesus, but in Acts 4, in Acts 13, and in Hebrews 1, like verse 5, 6, right in there, Uh, we find that these are quoted explicitly uh, from this psalm. These quotations are being used and being applied to the person of Jesus Christ so that he is, even in the New Testament, seen to be the the ultimate fulfillment and the ultimate subject and the ultimate occasion of this psalm and that which it points to. I want us to see three things from it very quickly. I want us to see rebellion in verses 1 through 3. I want us to see response in verses 4 through 6. And then I don't have an R. I I do, but it's really not very good. Um, I want us to see the issue of submission in verses 9 through 12. If you're just dead set on having an R, you may could go with resignation, uh, depending on what you mean by that. But that seems to carry a negative connotation. And what we'll find when we get to the issue of submission in verses 9, 10, 11, and 12, that there are two ways of submitting. One is negative by resignation, being forced to submit. And the other is willfully, you know, kissing the hand of the king and subjecting yourself to him uh, unto blessedness. So it doesn't have to be uh, seen in a negative light. So we're just, we're, we'll go with submission. But, but first, what about this rebellion? Look at verses 1 through 3 in the rebellion that it speaks of. So the psalm opens in these verses with uh, perhaps a narrator. Okay, So someone speaking and setting the stage, and he poses the question, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Okay, and, and there it is. The idea here that the, that the world, globally speaking, that sinners across the planet in their sin have this bitter rebellion by their nature against God and his rule in their life. This is the testimony of the Bible, it is the testimony of the Israelites. It is the testimony of the Israelites when God gives them judges, the refrain of that book. The judge comes and them, judges them, gets them. And if you want to think about it onto the straight and narrow, there is a time of peace and harmony and blessedness and obedience. The judge dies. Then what does it say? And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The, the testimony of the Bible is that in our nature, ultimately we fight against the rule and the reign of God as God over our lives. I want to be my own boss. You want to be your own boss. I want to do what I want to do and what feels right to me, and so too do you. And so he poses this question, which was the reality of this day and was the reality of Jesus' day and is the reality of our day. Why do the nation's rage and the People's plot in vain. He clarifies. Look at what he says in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, that is, they establish themselves or seek to, and the rulers take counsel together. So they're, they're now banding together in their rebellion against God, setting themselves up as the ruling authorities. Who? These rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed Now, the issue here, one of the reasons that we know this is a messianic psalm its always been held out to be that way, apart from the quotations in the New Testament explaining it, is even in the language here. This language of the anointed, the one that they are raging against, we know it's King Jesus because this is the Hebrew word that we get Messiah from, Meshiach, okay? And so this we, we know that the ultimate, uh, the ultimate king in view here is the ultimate Messiah of God, the king of God that he sends. That is Jesus Christ, the, the long-awaited Messiah that comes to ascend the throne. So the narrator begins in verses 1 and 2 articulating this rebellion, and then the nations in verse 3 break into their uh, first-person Exclamation here. Look at what they say. So this, these are the nations that are in verses one and two raging and plotting and setting themselves up and taking counsel together against the Lord and Jesus Christ, his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The idea there is their cords that would hold on to them and that would bind them and their restrictions, their their lordship over them, that they would be owned and would be possessed by them. And they seek to, to cast those off, that they would be free of God and the king that he has sent to, to rule them. Now, there's one, very important, uh, there's one very important place in light of verses 1, 2, and 3 in the New Testament that we must go. And so turn to Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, we read where this is quoted. Notice beginning in 4, 24, 25, 4, 25, 24 and 25. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So here's Psalm two, accredited to David as being written by David. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So here he is quoting from Psalm two. Look at what he says in verse 27. For truly in this city, There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So he's talking about the deliverance of Jesus up to death on the cross from Psalm 2. Now, why is that important? It's important because. What he's saying is that the apex or the culmination of the raging of the nations against the anointed king ultimately led to the cross. So that the players here, the kings of the earth and the rulers, you got Pontius Pilate, you got Herod, you got the Gentiles, you got the leaders of the age. They are representative here of these rulers that are counseling together and setting themselves up against the anointed of God. Proclaiming, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So in Acts 4.25, what we see is that the ultimate rebellion of men against God was the killing or the slaughtering of Jesus Christ. Now we know from Peter's sermon at Pentecost and from the language there in Acts 4, who killed Jesus? Well, the, <laughs> the leaders did and Pontius Pilate did and Herod did. But they did so because of the eternal decree and the predestined plan of God. That's made explicit. Now, that's going to come back in just a moment. We're going to see something of that and the working out of this psalm, even in God's response to this rebellion. But but let it be noted here that the, the, the culmination of our rebellion against God, this is the point that I'm trying to make, is a rejection of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Folks, so many people want a savior. I don't know anybody that wants to go to hell. I mean, even people that maybe say that, I think they only say that because they don't know what it is. I don't know anybody that wants to go to hell. Very few people truly want to find themselves subject to a king. We live in the ultimate expression in our culture of gross individuality. Where we stand on our rights and our preferences all of the time. Where you can do whatever is right for you as long as you do not impose anything upon me. Because I am my God, not you, not the government, and certainly not Jesus Christ. But friends, the teaching of the Bible from beginning to end is that we killed Jesus Christ because we hate his kingship. And the only way that men will come to God through him is if they embrace him both as Savior and as Lord. That he must indeed be embraced as the king. And we'll see that as we come to the end. What's God's response to this? So you've got the narrator opening it up in 1 and 2. Then you've got the nations making their proclamation that they're going to burst the bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. Then it seems there's some debate here. I'm going to say that it seems like the narrator speaking again, bringing clarification in four and five. Here's what he says. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury saying and then God is going to speak as for me I have set my king on Zion my holy hill now this is an interesting section because the response of the God in the heavens who has set his king over creation is twofold the first response we see from the narrator in verse four some people think that this is God speaking in verses four five and six either way the response of God is is the nations that rage and the sinners that reject are nothing to me. (laughs) That the the lordship of my king and of my son, Jesus Christ, and his authority and his reign and his victory does not stand relative to their desire to accept him, to believe in him and to honor him. He sits in the heavens and laughs. That's the same language of the scoffing. He scoffs at them. He And almost as if he mocks them like this is ridiculous before God, the creator of heaven and earth sits enthroned in the heavens and does as he pleases in accord with his eternal will by his plan and through his wisdom, he is not in need of me or you or Pontius, Pilate or Herod or anyone else throughout all of redemptive history to acknowledge the supreme kingship of Jesus in order for his kingship to be supreme. And so he sits in the heavens and he laughs. You know, who do these puny humans think they are? We want to be our own God, and then we have a trumped up view of our own authority. Right? I can be my own God. So far from only wanting that, I think that I bear the capacity for that. That's the first response. He laughs and he holds them in derision. It's not a good place to be. But then he opens his mouth and he speaks to them a second response. And notice that it comes in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. So this is for those who reject the kingship of Jesus. The fact that he has indeed anointed a king is not good news. And we need to get that. You know, there there is this dichotomy in the gospel that it is. Life and breath and peace and salvation to those of us who are being saved and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is a day of reckoning to those that reject. It's it's necessarily both. Look at what he says. In his wrath, terrifying them in his fury, he says or proclaims, as for me, like what, what do I have to say about this? I have set my king. It's already been done. I have set up my king on Zion, my holy hill. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, the question for us becomes, when did this take place? When did Jesus set up his king and anoint him as such? Well, if you notice verse 7, here's what he says. Now it is the messianic king speaking, beginning in verse 7. I will tell of the decree, he says. Now, that's very important, this decree. okay? The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And then he proclaims this promise. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So the question, when did Jesus, when did God set up his king, Jesus? When did this take place? Turn back to Acts chapter 13. Let me get in the right place this time. Acts 13. Look at verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, By raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he spoke in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. Do you see what he's saying? when is it that Jesus fulfilled the promise to the fathers and to their children? He quotes from Psalm 2, when was King Jesus set on his throne as king? In that formal sense, it was at his victorious resurrection. It is when he raised him from the dead. So one, he laughs. But two, he declares that I am setting my king, I have set my king, on my holy hill Zion. When did he do that? Acts 13, at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is a second question, though. Why or how? Listen to the answer that he gives. The messianic king speaking, going back to verse 7, I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, these things are past tense. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Then after, this is a reference to the resurrection in Acts 13. Look at what he says. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So so get this. Jesus had to be inaugurated through the resurrection as the reigning and conquering king over God's people as the absolute complete fulfillment of Psalm 2 because of the eternal decree of God. It could not not happen. So that by God's eternal decree which exists only in his eternal, infinite wisdom, and for his eternal and good purposes, in himself, there is this covenant made, there is this promise made, there is this declaration and decree made that orchestrates everything else that comes to pass throughout history that is the eternal decree of God. It had to happen. Jesus had to be set up through the resurrection as the king because of the eternal decree of God. Now, that's fascinating. Uh, I was reading Dr. Ligon Duncan on this, and he pointed out three ways, I think he said that this should blow our minds. I'm going to point to two of them for you that I think are maybe more pressing. Number one, it should fascinate us to no end. It should drive us to utter humility before King Jesus to think that it is because of God's eternal decree that we have been made Jesus' inheritance. That we have been made Jesus' inheritance. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And the ends of the earth your possession. Friends, that's not just a possession of land. We get to the New Testament. There is this theme again and again and again that God is redeeming through his son, Jesus Christ, a people for himself from the four corners of the world. From the nations. So from these same nations that rage, of which you and I were once a part in sin, God, through the King Jesus, that was set up as King at His inauguration, has now redeemed us as a people for Himself. Why? How? Because of His eternal decree. I mean, let that sink in for just a moment. It's not because of what you did today. It's not because at some point you decided to search for Jesus. It's not because at some point you decided you weren't good enough or you'd never get to heaven. All of these things have come to pass. Because before the earth was ever even made. Jesus chose you and set you apart for glory. That ought to blow your mind. That Jesus is not just the king generally. That he has been made your king. And you have been made his heritage. The inheritance that he seeks. Because of the eternal plan and decree of God. Friends, if God had not decreed that you be saved, you would still be lost. Number one, it ought to blow your mind because... It is by this eternal decree that we come to be the inheritance of God. The second thing that we ought to see here uh, is that by eternal decree, by his eternal decree, the nations, that is the Jews and the Gentiles, shall both come under his care and rule. This is fascinating. People say all the time, you know what, you don't have to get to the New Testament to see that it is the plan of God from eternity past that the gospel be open to the Gentiles. It's not as if Jesus came for the Jews and they would not have him. And so God sat in heaven and scratched his head and said, man, what am I going to do? I know what I'll do. I'll just go out to those Gentiles. I'll go to the highways and byways and see if I can find somebody else that might actually believe and embrace Jesus. God is not a reactive God. God does not struggle with our sin and imperfection. The gospel has gone to the nations And the nations, both Jew and Gentile, even from the Old Testament here in Psalm 2, shall be the inheritance for Jesus because of the eternal decree of God. Awesome. That it is always plan A. It is never plan B. Praise God that through King Jesus, he is working his eternal plans for the redemption of the nations and for our personal salvation unto his eternal glory. So we see a rebellion, then we see the response of God, and then we see in some way the result, which is submission. Look at verse 9. He says the positive there, verse 8, ask me and I'll give you the nations for your heritage and the ends of the earth for your possession. But look at what he says in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is extremely strong language. And this is the submission uh, by force. The, 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 The idea here is that because he has been eternally decreed as the king, and he has been set up as the king through the resurrection according to the plan of God, his inheritance... Cannot stand against him. They, they cannot choose to not be in subjection to the king. And that needs to sink in for just a moment. That from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every child, every person, every heart that's ever been on the face of this planet. There is coming a day that they either will by force or by willful submission come in subjection to the king. Because by God's eternal decree, he will rule over the nations, even if it means in order to subjugate them, he breaks them with a rod of iron and dashes them into tiny little pieces like a potter's vessel. It's pretty strong. I think it speaks for itself. But we must all reckon that there is coming a day of reckoning. We cannot exist outside of the reign of Jesus, despite perhaps our desire to do so. And this is all because of the eternal decree of God that he must reign. But notice 10 through 12, the second kind of submission. And this is a beautiful thing here. He says, now, therefore, O kings, be wise. (laughs) Don't be stupid. Don't be foolish, but be warned, O rulers of the earth. What should you do again like the blessed man who doesn't walk in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers or stand in the. uh, What are we to do? To serve. The Lord with fear and rejoice in him with trembling, that is with reverence, with awe. Kiss the Son. This is a strange term for most of us. This is not the embracing of a, a, friend, a friendly kiss. This is not uh, embracing a loved one that you've not seen in some time. That's not what this is. This is not uh, the, the, the greeting of one another with a holy or friendly kiss that we see in the New Testament epistles. This is not that. This is when a king, when his armies have come into your house and they've come into your city. And they have demolished your king. And they have conquered your city. And the reigning king comes in. You find yourself bowing down at his feet. Taking his hand. Symbolically. In subjection. Kissing his ring. And kissing his hand. And kissing his throne. Acknowledging that he has won. This willful submission. What's the encouragement here? Kiss the son. Lest his. Anger be against you and you perish, for his wrath is quickly kindled. That is against those that seek to reject his kingship. See, there is a salvation, but again, this salvation, this this sparing from the rod of iron that through God's fury and wrath comes through his king, That this sparing of sinners is only through willful submission to the king, Jesus Christ looking to him, trusting in him, hoping in him, submitting ourselves and our lives and our families and our churches to him. And then it closes with a blessing. For those that take refuge in him, blessed are they all. Blessed are all who take refuge in the king. And so I would just simply ask you tonight, where do you stand with the kingship of Jesus? It's a pretty straightforward psalm and a pretty straightforward and beautiful teaching. Do you desire a a savior and and, and desire heaven without desiring to be subject to the ruler of heaven and, and the king of God's people? It may seem like a negative terminology to talk about our bowing down to Jesus and being subject under his feet. Uh, But I I read one commentator that spoke of this beautifully as he said, you know, when we bow down at the feet of Christ and we seek to to kiss the son and to kiss the king, the anointed one and Messiah of God, we will see in those feet the nail marks that remind us that he has not subjected all men under his feet to be a tyrant over them but he has subjected them that with him they might be glorified and exalted. What a reminder and what a picture that is. May we find ourselves sincerely and truly and really and genuinely looking to and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting ourselves to him, taking refuge in him and receiving blessed salvation as a result. Let's pray. Um, Lord God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings. God, we thank you that it is by your eternal decree that you have uh, anointed him and appointed him. And, And God, also that you have given to him the nations as a heritage. And that through him, you are redeeming Jews and Gentiles and sinners from all over the planet as a people for yourself. God I pray tonight that we would not be those that seek allegiance only to ourselves or to some other that we would not be those who rage and plot in vain and counsel together against you and your king for we understand even from this psalm that it will only end in destruction but God may we be those who are blessed who found our who find ourselves in Willful submission subject to King Jesus. God, who desire him and his word and the blessing that he offers. God, we pray tonight that Jesus would be our savior and our king and our Lord. In his precious and holy name we pray. Amen.